Well, good morning to you, Foundry, those of you who are joining us in person, those of you who are tracking with us online from wherever you are, welcome and, and happy Advent. Um, you know, you don't have to be very old before you, when you, before you, you experience sort of the shock, like the jaw-dropping moment where you realize that not everyone celebrates holidays the same way you do. You know, like, like, if you, like if you're a person that's like always travels or you had like seven Thanksgivings, you know, and then like you, 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 you articulate that at school, at the lunch table, and the room is like, what, what? Like I can remember one of the more heated conversations ever in a neighborhood group um, was not about doctrine. I don't know what this says about human nature or how we walk out the way of Jesus, but whether or not mac and cheese is an acceptable Thanksgiving food. And that there was a table of people that were like, where has that been all of my life? Mac and cheese at Thanksgiving. And then there's a group of people that were like, there's just some things you don't do, man. You just don't do the mac and cheese at the Thanksgiving. Like, like it escalated in a, in a fun way, thankfully. But, 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 but that all of that is rooted in is there's some things that are just normal to us that we do without really thinking about the fact that we're doing them. So, so I don't know if you're an early Christmas decorator or you are a last minute, that when I absolutely have to do it, I'll do it. But, but here's the reality. You're going you're gonna to tuck some things out that have been tucked away for a bit, unless you left everything up last year. And, and, and you're going to put some things on the wall. You're going to slap some things together that like, if you didn't have any understanding of why you do those things, you would go, wait. You're bringing a tree into, you're going like, to cut a tree, drag it into your house, and then like decorate it, and then like at some point drag it back outside? You're going to put lights on that tree. You're going to do, do what? Deck the halls what? Like what are we singing? What is this all about? So what we're going to do over the course of this Advent season is, is have a little fun thinking about some things that we probably do and we probably participate in with no sense of where they come from, right? Like, in the church answer to the question of, like, where do all these Christmas celebrations come from is, like, Jesus. But it's actually not true. Some of them are festivals and things that came around solstices and celebratory times that as, as people examined the thing that they were celebrating, they saw in those shadows a greater substance. And so what we're going to have some fun doing over the course of these next couple of weeks is taking a look at some of the traditions and the things that, 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 that were used to sort of celebrate different expressions of festivity and fun in the December slash solstice season, and we're going to find in them the beauty of the hope and peace and joy and love that's, that's available to us in Jesus. Now, I'm excited about this series because it kind of plays in a little bit to my, like, you know, by the time I actually get it off the ground, my, my armchair historian podcast, podcasts will be a thing that people did 10 years prior. Like, I, I'm just not an early adapter in that way. So we are going to have some fun, like, studying some history and things like that. But what we're really going to see, I think, ultimately, and my, my goal in our time over these several weeks is to appreciate um, in a new and fresh way the, the, the preparations that we're making that we might in our hearts, like, make space for the arrival of Jesus 
in a new way, in a fresh way, in, a, in an encouraged way, and in a challenged way. And all of this will culminate, uh, this, this series will culminate with our, our Christmas Eve celebrations, which will happen December 23rd at 7 p.m. and December 24th at 5 and 7 p.m. Um, if you're in the room proper, you'll notice some postcards that are sitting in the pew in front of you. You can take those with you if you'd like to begin to invite folks to those festivities and fun. Um, you can also pay attention to us on social media if you're looking for the, the shareable content um, about those respective events. Okay, so let's dive in by, by looking at a text from the book of Isaiah. A text written 700 plus years before the birth of Jesus, but speaks to the hope of what Jesus has come to be known as in terms of the Messiah. This, this, these words that were given and articulated by Isaiah are amongst some of the most beautiful and robust in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew scriptures, that point to the way in which God is going to make right what has been fractured by sin and idolatry and rebellion. And he speaks about a Messiah that's going to arrive for Judah, for Jerusalem, ultimately for the world. In Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. This is what Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. Many people will come to say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will take up sword against nation, will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. So there's this beautiful picture of hope, peace, instruments of destruction becoming items of community building. People from all nations coming to Jerusalem not to conquer it, not to pillage it, not to exploit it, but to learn about the law and the love of God. And for that to go outward, not in a spirit of conquest, not in a spirit of nationalism, not in a spirit of we've got the right answer and the rest of you all are stupid, but in light of there is hope found on this hill and in this mountain and, and, and so Isaiah's words, and I think it's important for you to know, are this beautiful promise of hope. But they arrive at a time that feels, for the recipients of those words, anything but hopeful. Judah and Jerusalem are a shell of their former selves at this point. Sin, rebellion, and idolatry and divisiveness have sort of fractured everything from within. The, the rising power of the Assyrians will ultimately lead to another existential threat to the very existence of this place. Depending on when you date the, the authorship of this particular letter, 
Rome is either just starting to form or is like a little baby on its way. Another superpower that, you know, will come to be in the times of Mary when we talk about her in a few minutes, the occupying force and the power of the world. It is a time for the hearer that feels anything but hopeful. King Uzziah is dead. (laughs) What's going to happen in the midst of this uncertainty? Isaiah's words wash over a reality that is dark and dreary and heavy. And, And so I find this to be good news for you and I. Because I don't know if you've looked around, but we are in a moment, right? This, this beautiful verse about swords into plowshares like comes at a time where we feel the sting of violence perpetrated in our country. Where we see conflict escalating across the world. Where we see a world soccer tournament that like brings us all together and gives us something to talk about. But then we pull back the camera on all of that and we're like, corruption and bribery and yuck. Can we still like the soccer? (laughs) We, 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 We come from Thanksgivings where some of us had really, really good Thanksgivings. And some of us are entering seasons of grief and loss because this is the first time without a particular person at the table. We we see, for some of us, this great reconnection of family and friends and people that we love. Or perhaps we feel the sting of the family table, the friend table, being shaken by strife and pain. Some of us may have eaten to the point of almost like, I don't know if that was sinful or not. (laughs) And others of us didn't eat anything at all. The words of Isaiah's prophecy land for us in a time like, okay, that, that sounds good, but that just sounds like sentimentality to me. It just sounds like something you say to make yourself feel better about the reality around us. How does this happen? How will we get there? What can take place that would bring any kind of change like this? In the first couple hundred years after the arrival of Jesus... In the northern hemispheres of Europe, there was a celebration that began to take root around the winter solstice. The celebration was Yule. It comes from a a Norse word. Um, It became uh, associated with a, a, a practical reality that at this time of year, the weather gets cold, the growing season is over, And the days get really short. And so there really is a longing for two things, right? To enjoy the bounty of the last season. And oh, please, sun and weather and light, please come back. (laughs) 
Because the, the days are, like, like the days being short for us, right, is like mildly inconvenient at 4.45 when you walk outside and you're like, and it's nighttime. But, but you can imagine for an agrarian people why this would present itself as a problem. And so the festivals of Yule became a festival to do a couple of things. Number one, to enjoy the harvest of the season that was, to revel to rejoice, to build big fires and have big celebrations and to eat lots of meat, to, to remember the bounty of what came, but to do so in a way that's like, please, please, please make sure it comes back. So let's build those fires big and high because we need to get the attention of the gods. <laughs> They, we need them to come back. We need to do this the right way. Like, celebrate rightly, friends. They're watching. Don't tick them off. When the celebrations moved indoors, you can see things like what will come up on the screen where, where uh, people will pull entire logs into the house. During the season of Yule, you, you kept the fire burning. You, you find a way to keep the fire going. You find a way to keep it stoked until the end of the festival. And it's bad luck. In fact, you might really make the gods mad in the original sort of context if that sacrifice is not acceptable and right and you don't do it correctly. As, as that kind of longing sort of moved to a superstition, it became like, no, seriously, do not let this fire go out because at the end of this, if you get to the end of this celebration and your fire is still stoked and going, there's magic in those ashes. The, the ground will return. Fertile. The light will come back. Plentiful. You'll be provided and cared for. And you can see why you would then decorate your house with evergreens and, and why this Yule log became kind of a penultimate celebration. Now, we don't tend to do this. We tend to eat Yule logs as like decorative desserts, um, which may be like what you do for the Yule season. So, so this, this solstice season becomes this. Now, so you can see in this, right, like the, the kind of the longing the conclusion drawn is that the way hope would arrive to you for the next growing season is that you do everything right. You stoke the fire correctly. You do so largely in a way that appeases the one who will provide. And you can see for a minute why that could drive you pretty crazy, right? And, and functionally speaking, I think if we're honest... We might talk about words like grace and mercy and hope in church circles, but I think functionally what a lot of us have attributed is a very Yule-like belief system to the way of Jesus, right? That I've, got to, that I've got to lay the right logs of behavior onto the fire, that I have to stoke those things correctly and largely and loudly enough that the world around me will know that I'm a good person and that God will somehow be pleased with me. Which may be why for some of us, we look at this way of Jesus and don't see a whole lot of hope at all. <laughs> because as we just talked about in the entirety of our last series, like we know too many moments where we aim to do the right thing and fail to do it rightly. 
or where the environment we find ourselves in isn't particularly conducive to a large roaring fire. Our life feels a lot more like a cold, desolate darkness. So as Isaiah lays these words over the human heart and condition, right? We respond to them. We understand uh, with a very Yule-esque longing the, the, the hope that someone will deliver us from ourselves. But Isaiah's answer, if you read in totality the book of Isaiah, is like, hey, it's not in you. It won't be about what you do. It will be about who you attach yourself to, who you align yourself to, and that one is coming and will arrive in the Messiah. Luke chapter 1. On the outskirts of the Roman Empire, the new emergent superpower, <laughs> there is a young woman who is not the best place or context or platform by which to announce hope is arriving. And yet, an angel of the Lord appears to this young woman and articulates that the words that have been brought into light by prophets like Isaiah, which she would have been very aligned with and been very much understanding of, are going to arrive in and through her. Not because of anything she's done up to this point to bring a child into the world. Not because of anything she's done in order to be the one, like of all of the billions of people in the world, or hundreds of thousands of people, or however many people are living and breathing at that exact moment. Not because she is the best of the best of the best. She rated highly, most highly in favor, but because God has seen her and shown favor to her. Luke 1.28 says, Greetings, you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. Highly favored doesn't mean you've, you've earned your way into that spot. It means God sees you. God sees you. And as the angel announces what will happen and transpire, that essentially a rescue plan promised back in the book of Genesis is being set into motion, Mary responds with what we have come to be known as the Magnificat. Um, it says this in Luke chapter 1, verse 46, her response to the news that she will carry the child that will bring hope into the world. She says, Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. He has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled hung the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Now, 
Now that section will just preach. It, I mean, it will, but like I want to highlight just something really quick. When, when, when Mary talks about herself, she, she talks about how God has been mindful to the humble state of of his servant. It's such a juxtaposition from, right, I built this amazing fire. Cool, you actually listened. <laughs> it's about time. Could you make the bounty good next year? There's a beautiful description of the hope that will be ushered in this by this Messiah. But it will be not because Mary has correctly figured out the formula, but because God is interested in stepping into the broken and uncertain places with which we find ourselves. Where mercy must be extended. Where the mighty deeds of God are the only thing that can rescue us. Where the proud exploit. Where, um, where the hungry are exploited. Where there are people who are longing to be seen and to remember, be remembered. And so as we think about hope and we reflect on hope, the words of Isaiah and the actions and words of Mary, I think, point to something today. An invitation to, to not look at Advent hope as doing all of the right things perfectly. Singing all the right songs, gathering all the right people, praying all the right prayers, memorizing all the right passages, and showing up at church just enough times to keep God off your back till next year. But rather, to, to think about our state, the world around us, where we feel the sting of hopelessness, where we see the marginalization and the othering, where we see the exploitation, and say, God, help me to have a long view, even in this space, to what you have done and to what you are doing. And I think Mary does show us something about how to tend to a fire. But it's, but it's about patience and patient endurance and active stoking. The days ahead for Mary will be bringing a child into the world, which I have observed and noticed is not an easy task, <laughs> right? For all of the glowing and for all of the excitement of good news becomes preparation and exercise and nutrition and care and work and blood and tears and and constantly walking in the uncertainty of the context and the circumstances, trusting that things will work rightly. It's patient endurance. To, to, to build the fires of hope is to patiently endure and to work, not so that we can get God to do for us what we need God to do for us, but so that we can cling to the thing God is doing in the world. As, John, as Drew Jackson says, not all darkness is darkness of despair. This may be the darkness of the womb that is consuming you, inviting you to wait for the fullness of time. Patient endurance in a time for us where we're so accustomed to immediate gratification. Where even if we got all of the peace on earth that we kind of snap our fingers and wish for, we would have to acknowledge that we would struggle to hold that thing together for more than just a few minutes at a time. 
the patient endurance to continue to show up, to continue to, to stoke in ourselves the fires of hope in times of despair. It's not the absence of grief. It's not the absence of hard times. It's not the absence of big questions. It's a willingness to endure when Mary ushers these words into the world, I wonder how many times she has to bring herself back to what she says here. So may we patiently endure, but may we also actively stoke to pursue justice, to pursue mercy, to pursue the, the, the way of Jesus without losing our soul in the process or becoming the very monster we're trying to stop. And how many people have, have uttered things similar to Mary about what their platform and way that they'll bring peace into the world would look like and be only to get to that seat and perpetuate in a preservation of power the very things they said they would stamp out. The way of Jesus will be a different way. And so may we actively stoke the fires of the hope of the Messiah to, 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 to not just try to earn the favor of the gods that may get us immediately what we want, but to say, it, my heart is, is an environment where, where hope can arrive even in dreary and heavy circumstances. But it has to be stoked. It has to be paid attention to. How do, we, how do we fill ourselves with messages that remind us of that hope, with people who, who breathe life and courage into us? How do we get outside of ourselves so that we may see um, that we don't have to operate in a spirit of scarcity? How might we see um, in, our, in, our, in our proactive encouragement the way God wants to work in, in our lives? To actively stoke hope is to troll the ancient Yuletide carol. To troll the ancient Yuletide carol. And we come from a time of great cynicism where trolling the ancient Yuletide carol is just hating everything. We literally troll the ancient Yuletide carols, right? Like we hear this song and we're like, that's stupid. Any message of hope that's out there, we're like, yeah, right. Are you serious? Have you looked around? But in the original context of trolling the ancient Yuletide carol, trolling would be a vocal technique. It's just like, you sing it loud, you sing it proud, you sing it like you're at the concert, and 80,000 other people are with you, and nobody will hear you. Or you sing it like you've had an eggnog or two, and you don't care what anyone thinks. You, you, you hide that in your heart till it becomes part of you and you proclaim it. We live in a time where, where it's easier to troll hope, to shoot it down, <laughs> to say it's non-existent. I think then to say, how might in this Advent season we invite this kind of hope into our story so that it might become part of us? But that's the invitation of this season, that the light has stepped near and can ignite something in us. Fleming Rutledge in her book Advent says this, Is it possible that the wonderment and awe on the faces of ugly shepherds signifies something other than the spectacle of a cute baby lying in, a straw, in the straw? What if there were news not only for the woman in the mink, 
but for the man on death row. News not only for the fearful, but also for the numb. News not only for the homeless, but also for those who are afraid of the homeless. News not only for the would-be innocent, but also for those of us who know ourselves to be frauds. The message of hope we have this season isn't build the fire big enough and God will do what you need. But rather, God has stepped into our midst and ignited something in us. Let us patiently endure and stoke the fires of hope. Come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. We'll do that now by celebrating communion, the Lord's Supper. And it's a chance for us to, to literally do the words of Isaiah, to come, to let us walk in the light of the Lord. To walk to the table saying, my strivings and tryings are not what got me here. In light of who you are, in light of your character, would your light bring me warmth to the places where I feel coldness and despair? May it light paths that feel unclear and uncertain. May it, may it burn or consume the things that we pursue that don't bring life. The Lord's table is a place where we're reminded of how that light has arrived and the person and the work and the hope that's offered in Jesus. There's four gluten-free stations in this room. I'll pray for us, and then we invite you to walk in the light of the Lord by receiving at one of the tables, taking it back to your seat, and participating as you're ready. Let's pray. God, oh, that we would see that the hope that arrives to us in you is not just because we sang the right songs, memorized the right scriptures, behaved rightly, and, and got it all correct. We're keenly aware, if we're honest, that that's not us. But who you are is a God who steps near broken spaces, broken places, and refuses to leave them in that condition. May we receive that light as good news in our story. As we think about your sacrifice, as we think about your love, and we think about the hope that we find in you. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.